Well, good morning, everyone. So happy to be here with you, uh, worshiping God, and uh, I'm so thrilled uh, on Graduate Sunday. Uh, just a very, very special day, and I hope, I hope you felt loved through that, uh, seniors. I hope families, you felt, felt that we love your kids very, very much, and we care about them, and um, uh, we're, we're just honored to be able to share this celebration with you. Well, if you would, if you take out your Bibles and turn to Colossians chapter 3, please. Colossians 3. You know, I hope that you've, uh, I hope that you've really enjoyed this walk through the book of Colossians. I think this book, just like all the other epistles that Paul wrote, I think it really speaks uh, to today. I think uh, what we've seen in these last few weeks is Paul, as a, as a challenge um, to, to defend the centrality and the power of Christ, through different kinds of mysticisms and, and false teachings about God, uh, he, he attempted to, to, to um, defend the honor and the glory of Jesus, because Jesus is the only way. The true biblical Jesus is the only way to salvation. So Paul makes this, this real effort to bring the people of Colossae to the truth uh, of Christ, because he doesn't want them to fall into the trappings. And I think that speaks to us today so much, uh, very so. Um, we, we see a lot of different ideologies nowadays, and we see a lot of attacks on the gospel, but it's like Jesus told Peter, the gates of Hades will not prevail. He is almighty and powerful from eternity. And so we're going to look into now, as Paul has talked about the power, the centrality of Christ, he now moves in to uh, uh, the mentality and the unity that believers have in Jesus, a beautiful picture of unity with believers in Christ. So let's read real quick Colossians chapter 3. We're going to read verses 1 through 17 uh, to get our mind focused on this text. Verse 1, so if you've been raised with Christ, seek the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. And by the way, I'm reading from the CSB, uh, CSB translation. Verse 2. Set your, set your minds on things above, not on earthly things, for you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. For Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Therefore, put to death what belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, God's wrath upon the disobedient, and, and you once walked in these when you were living in them. Now put away all the following, anger, wrath, malice, slander, filthy language from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, since you have put off the old self when it's with its practices, and you have put on the new self. You are being renewed in the knowledge according to your image of your creator. In Christ there is not Greek and Jew, circumcision and uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free, but all is all, Christ is all and in all. Verse 12, therefore, as God's chosen and holy, dearly loved ones, put on compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, patience, bearing with one another and forgiving one another if anyone has grievances against another. Just as the Lord has forgiven you, so you are to forgive. Above all, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity, and let the peace of Christ, to which you were also called to one body, rule your hearts. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell richly among you in all wisdom and teaching, admonishing one another through psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. Verse 17. And whenever, whatever you do, 
in word or in deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Unity is the word that's central that really speaks to chapter 3. A unity in Christ. In fact, he starts off, verse 1, so if you've been raised with Christ, so let's, let's just focus in on that phrase. If you've been raised with Christ, if you've been raised in Christ, then the people, what Paul is saying is they have a spiritual unity with him. Since they've been raised with him, they have a spiritual connection with him. And actually, the verb here actually means to be co-resurrected with Jesus. So that means if they've been co-resurrected, that means they've been lifted from something. They've changed from something. They've come to life. That old life was a dead life. That old life was marred with sin, labeled with judgment, and in unity with the first human created Adam and his sin. Listen to what scripture says about the natural state of man outside of Christ. Jeremiah chapter 17, chapter 17 verse 9 says this, the heart is more deceitful than anything else and incurable. Who can understand it? Psalm 51 talks about how we are born in iniquity, born under sin. Ecclesiastes chapter 7 Verse 20 tells us that there is none that do righteous, no, not good, not in the natural state of a man who is in unity with Adam. But, but Paul says, if you have been raised with Christ, you have been, you seek things from above. Now this word if, it works from the original language, but I like what the NIV uses. It says, since you've been raised with Christ. See, since you've been raised with Christ, your old life has died. He says, since you have been raised with Christ, just like Jesus as he took his last breath on the cross, that old life took its last breath. And at the moment of regeneration, at the moment of the gospel being spoken to the heart, the Holy Spirit transforming the heart, we see conversion, we see unity, and we see a changed life by the power of the gospel. By the power of Scripture, the book of Romans, Paul talks about this, how you've died to your old life, you've been buried, the old life has been placed in the tomb, but a new life rises, a new life that walks by the Spirit of God, that walks by Christ. And so Paul says here, hey, since that is you, using the NIV terminology, since that is you, seek the things above where Christ is is seated. And then again, he goes into verse two. He says, set your mind above, not on earthly things, but on heavenly things. He's telling the Colossians here to seek heavenly things, to look to the heavens where Christ is seated. But you see, church, when we look at the heavens and we see this phrase of Jesus sitting at the right hand of God, this is where Paul is taking his people. He's taking them to seek that joy and that victory where Christ is seated in the heavenly. You see, this, this, phrase, this phrase where Christ is seated at the right hand of God, this is, this is not where Christ is just chilling and hanging out. This is not Jesus just sitting and watching the world go by. No, this is a position of majesty, 
This is a position of kingship. This is a king on his throne who has won the war, who has done what he set out to do. This is God in the flesh who has came to the world, conquered death, and now he sits on his throne. This is what Paul is trying to get the Colossians to understand. Listen to Psalm 110, verse 1. This is the declaration of the Lord. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. Till I make your enemies a footstool. Christ is making his enemies a footstool in the day. Luke chapter 22, verse 66 through 69. You don't have to turn there. You can just listen along. Christ has just been beaten by the Sanhedrins. He's just been beaten by the Jewish leaders. And now he's on trial, being persecuted falsely, being on a fake trial. And this is what they say to him. When the daylight came, the elders of the people, both chiefs and priests, the scribes, they convened and brought him before the Sanhedrin. They said, if you are the Messiah, tell us. But he said to them, if I do tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand and the power of God. So Jesus tells them, hey, you will reject me. But soon enough, I will be seated in glory. I will be seated in power in the right hand of God, dwelling in the heavens. Ephesians chapter 1, Paul says this about God's exalted power. He says this, Ephesians 1, verse 20. He exercised the power in Christ by raising them from the dead and seating him in the heavens, far above every ruler, authority, power, and dominion, ever given every title, not only in this age, but in the age to come. So Christ is head of all rulers. He is the ruler. He is king. There's no ruler with a greater name than Christ. And then, of course, Romans 8. Romans 8, chapter, verses 34, says this. It says, who is the one... Who is the one against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ is the one who died, but even more, he has been raised. He is also at the right hand of God and intercedes for us. You know how powerful that is to know that? That God himself, the Son of God, is interceding for you. He's stepping in on your behalf. Later on in that chapter, it tell, or earlier in that chapter, it tells us that the Holy Spirit's interceding through prayer, interceding through our weakness. Christ is setting in, he's stepping in and, and interceding in on behalf of our sin, on behalf of our weakness and our struggles. So what Paul is telling these uh, Colossians in this verse is that the, God is seated on his right hand. He's above, above every ruler. He is the authority of the world. And he is in the heavens right now in victory interceding for the people of God. For those who have believed the gospel, for those who have trusted him, he is in your place on behalf of God the Father. Listen to this. Listen to this victory. Listen to this victory in Revelation chapter 20, verse 11 through 15. Then I saw a great white throne. This is John's vision. Then I saw a great white throne, one seated on it. The earth and heaven fled from his presence and no place was found for them. I saw the dead, the great, and the small standing before the throne. And the books were opened. Another book was opened, which was the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by what was written in the book. Then the sea gave up the dead who were in it. The dead in Hades 
Dead at the, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. Each one was judged according to the works. Death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the, the lake of fire. And anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. This is a revelation that says Christ will ultimately throw Satan and his dominions in the pit of hell, seal it forever. That Satan has been already defeated by the power of Christ. That he has already won this war. That he is already reigning in victory. Now, do we walk in that victory today? Knowing that death and Satan himself have been slain? Have been slain by Christ through his resurrection, through the conquering of death, and one day that death itself will be defeated? meaning that all those who have submitted to Christ will see eternal life. There will be no death. That's Christ seated at the right hand of God. That's the victory. That's what Paul is trying to get the Colossians to set their minds to. He says, don't worry about these earthly things. Don't worry about these troubles. Set your mind on heavenly things, the victory of Christ. Just like what Peter says in 1 Peter. He said, the press, press to an inheritance in the face of your persecution. Press to that victory. Students, that's so true for you today. On your campuses, in your workplace, wherever you are, there is no amount of persecution you can face that's greater than the victory of Christ that's already won for you. It's already won for you. If you've put your faith in Christ, if you've repented of your sin, that victory is there for you. And moving into verse 4, Paul takes them now from seeing that victory in Christ, and he goes into verse 4, and he says, or excuse me, he says verse 3 and 4, he says, For you died, and your life is hidden, it's hidden with Christ in God. For when Christ, when Christ is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. So understand this concept of being hidden in Christ. What could that possibly mean? Hidden in Christ. In Christ. Well, we need to understand biblically what, what Paul is, is kind of referring to. Think back to the fall of man, very beginning. The serpent deceives Adam, he deceives Eve. Adam sins against God, Eve sins against God. What, what is their reaction? They hide. They sew fig leaves together, they cover themselves, their nakedness and their shame because they have the knowledge of good and evil and they hide. And the Bible says, What? God was walking in the cool of the day. And he called out for Adam. And we know God's sovereignty. We know God knew where Adam was. It was almost like a, a slow, painful punishment. Adam, where are you? There was nowhere for Adam to hide. God approached him, gave him his judgments, gave he and Eve their judgments, which followed the curse that we are under today, which is why there is evil in this world. Because of Adam and Eve's sin, and there was nowhere to hide from the judgment that they had brought upon themselves because of their sin. Think about Exodus, the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 12. The Israelites are enslaved by Egypt. God raises a man named Moses to speak on his behalf as a prophet to proclaim to the king of Egypt, Pharaoh, to let my people go, right? To let God's people go out of slavery. We know Pharaoh rejects that command, and so God not only um, uses his hardened heart, but hardens his heart, and he brings judgments down on Egypt. Now, God instructs his people how to, how to escape this judgment. To take an unblemished lamb, 
slaughter, sacrifice, blood would cover their doorposts. And as judgment would come down, they would, as death would come down, God would see that atonement of that sacrifice that was made for their sin, and he would pass over them. But those who were not covered under that atonement would fall to the judgment. So what, what, is, what are we seeing here in these stories? What are we seeing what it means to have Christ, your life hidden in Christ? Take that thought of Passover. Christ is your Passover lamb. You are guilty in your sin, just like everyone in the world. Not one person has lived out inside of God's commands perfectly. Everyone has sinned and falls short of the glory of God, Paul's writing in Romans. But what Christ has done is he came to the earth, kept the law that none of us can do. And so when he kept the law, he fulfilled the righteousness of God. He took our sin on the cross, died on that cross, was buried, and rose from the dead. And now because of that, God has given us a gift through faith and repentance that we receive that righteousness of Christ that we have not obtained. That punishment that we owe as was taken by Christ. And so because of that, our lives are then hidden by Christ. When God sees that judgment, that verdict, he sees Christ. He sees the righteousness of Christ because we are covered in it by our repentance and our faith. Not any way that we can boast. Christ earned it all. But our lives are hidden in Christ. It's what we call justification. It means that you're justified even in your sin by the power and the glory and the righteousness of Christ. And it's only through him that we can obtain that. The only way we are hidden from the judgment of God that we deserve is through the hiddenness and the righteousness of Christ, which is freely offered to anyone who will repent and believe the gospel. If you'll repent and believe the gospel, you are covered in Christ, and that judgment will not fall upon you because you are hidden, hidden in the glory and the righteousness of Christ. So, Paul has taken his, his Colossian church to this level of, 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 of obedience, of, of seeing Christ and of worshiping him. And then now he moves into verse, uh, verse 5. Now we see here practicality. So we see the glory of God throughout these chapters. And now we start moving into some practical walks. Now, if you'll notice in all the epistles, it usually starts with what Christ has done, exaltation of him and his glory and his righteousness and salvation that's offered, and then we see how do we respond from that? In other words, how do we walk in the grace that God's given us? How do we know grace is working on our hearts? And these epistles give us this. The back half of the epistles give us how we should walk. So in verse 5 through 7, Therefore, put to death what belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, greed, which is idolatry. But because of these, God's wrath is upon the disobedient, and you once walked in these when you were living in them. Now, Paul, there in verse 5, excuse me one second. Verse 5, Paul lists about six sins there. Four of them are in the realm of sexual immorality. Now, if you look in the epistles, you read closely and you see these commands that Paul gives his church. He takes a very, very strong stance 
against sexual immorality. If you go through, looking through 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 8 through 19, it says this, Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the person who is sexually immoral sins against his own body. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 3 through 5, he says this, says this, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you keep away from sexual immorality, that each of you knows how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not with lustful passions like the Gentiles who do not know God. So he actually applies fleeing, he, he stresses it as part of their sanctification, as part of the basic Christian walk, to flee from sexual immorality, flee from the dangers of it. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 4. Hebrews 13, verse 4 says this, Marriage is to be honored by all the marriage bed kept undefiled because God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterer. So he defends the confines of marriage, okay, of sexual uh, relations to be done within the confines of God's gift of marriage. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, back to that chapter. Verse 9 says this, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit God's kingdom? Do not be deceived, nor no sexually immoral or immoral people, idolaters, adulterers, or males who have sex with males will not inherit the kingdom of God. This is very strong language that Paul uses throughout the epistles against sexual immorality. And then we also see stories like Sodom and Gomorrah, who were deep in sexual immorality, and God destroyed the city by his judgments. So what, what, what we need to understand here is this is a huge part of sanctification, but what, what, what is Paul arguing from? What is his, his main aim when it comes to being sexually pure? Well, if we look in Genesis, we understand God's design for sexual relations. Turn with me. Genesis chapter 2, looking at verses 18 through 24. Then the Lord God said, it's not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper corresponding to him. The Lord God formed out of the ground every wild animal, bird, sky, and brought to each man what he could see and what he would call it. And whatever the man called the living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock, the birds, and the sky, and every wild animal. But for the man, no helper was found corresponding him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to come over the man, and he slept. God took out one of his ribs, closed the flesh at that place. Then the Lord God made the rib and taken out from the man into a woman and brought her to a man and said, This one at last is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. This one will be called woman, for she will be taken from the man. This is why a man leaves his father and mother and bonds to his wife, so they will become one flesh. So we see in the very beginning the laying down Laying down of marriage, the laying down of what God sees as the gift of marriage. This gift we have is unity. God unifies a man and a woman together in one flesh to come together as one. And what are the blessings from this? We see childbirth. We see life. We see God's design for life in marriage. But I think one of the most beautiful things about biblical marriage and about the purity of marriage 
is the picture of the gospel. Look at Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 through 29. Listen to the language here. Wives, submit to your husband as to the Lord, because the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church. He is the Savior of the body. Now as the church submits to Christ, the wives are to submit to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. To make her holy, cleansing her with the washing of the water by the word. He did this to present the church to himself in splendor without a spot, wrinkle, or anything like that, but holy and blameless. In the same way husbands are to love their wives as their own bodies, he loves He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one has ever hated his own flesh, but provides and care for it, just as Christ does for the church. I went a little ahead there, but you see in marriage, you see the gospel. You see the picture of the gospel. The man taking the position of Christ, the wife taking the position of the church, and this sacrificial love, these two come together and lay their lives down for one another and come together in a sacrificial love that is meant by God's design. It's a picture of grace. It's a picture of the gospel. It's a picture of sacrificial love. And this is what we see God's design for love between man and woman. The problem is we see, we see the lines being blurred on that idea today. Unfortunately, God's design for sex, God's design for marriage has been under attack, and it's under attack like none other. We see that purity or abstinence or wait until marriage, we see that now as somewhat of a minority. We see that as somewhat now as uncommon. And unfortunately, it's celebrated in culture to be that way. We also see the idea of of that sex sells. We see our young girls being sold on this idea that they have to dress a certain way, they have to look a certain way in their social media profiles to garner attention. Not teaching that Christ is all they need. Not teaching that they don't have to garner attention. They don't have to look for these things because they have Christ. They have the eternal God that loves them. And then, of course, we see our own president now creating laws that encourage the insane idea of transgenderism and of how genders can now be flipped and now how they can flip sports teams and how we are encouraging our young people to put the opposite effect of what their body natural desire naturally has. So hormones in a young girl and things of that nature. And we're seeing this thing encouraged and just the damage it does. Now here's, students, something you'll see. An argument that has really become popular is that the fact that Jesus never addressed homosexuality. And this is the thing that people use to attack the words of Christ, and they use to attack this idea of sexual purity. But I want to tell you, this is a narrow view of Scripture. This is a false view of Jesus. And quite frankly, this is just sloppy biblical work. Look at Matthew chapter 19, verse 6. Jesus affirms God's design in marriage. For this reason, as he says to the Pharisees, I'm starting verse 5, for this reason, 
He made them male and female. And he also said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become flesh. They are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, God has joined them together. Let no one separate. Jesus, the Son of God, the Eternal One, the Savior, affirms biblical marriage and God's design for marriage from the beginning. In Luke chapter 17, he goes back to that story of Sodom and Gomorrah. He talks about the judgments to come. He talks about what what took place in that day. So he clearly is trying to warn people of what what took place in that time, the sexually immoral things that were going on. But if that's not good enough, go to Matthew chapter 5. The Sermon on the Mount, the greatest sermon ever preached. Listen to this, Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 through 30. He says this, you have heard it said, do not commit adultery, but I tell you, everyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to to sin, gouge it out, throw it away, for it is better for you to lose one of your parts than enter your whole body into hell. So Christ takes it from the heart. He takes it from a working sin to a sin of the heart when it comes to this sexual uh, uh, impurity. Jesus affirms God's design. Why? Because he is God. He won't speak against scripture. He won't speak against the truth of the Bible. But just think about it. Think about it logically. Christ never said anything about rape. You think he's going to affirm that just because he didn't specifically talk about it? He covers it in sexual immorality. These are not arguments that will poke at the house of cards of the gospel. These are weak arguments. These are not biblically sound And the fact is, Paul says it best in verse 5, at the end of verse 5. Why are these arguments coming? Well, it's because impurity, lust, evil, desire, greed, which is idolatry. It's wanting what you want more than what God has designed for life. It's desiring the desires of the flesh more than the fruit of the Spirit. And we see it all throughout Scripture. Church, we don't... We don't hound on sexual purity just, just to win debates. We don't hound on sex, sexual purity just because we think it's right. It's what God has designed. It's what's best for life. It's what's best for reproduction. We see when, when people live outside uh, of sexual, uh, the sexually confines of marriage, we see baggage coming into new marriages. We see uh, things such as uh, uh, rape that can come into play. We see uh, awful kinds of atrocities that can come outside of what God has designed. What God designed for sexual relation in marriage is what's best for life because it's his knowledge from the beginning. It's very important as a church that we fight to remain Keep purity and encourage purity in our young people. Young people, you need to listen. You need to keep your life pure because that's what God's called you to. And I know you hear that argument all the time, but it is what is best for life. God has given his knowledge to you to know what's best for life. There may be some of you in here that have broken that command. But here's hope. For everyone, Paul says in verse 7, And you once walked in these things and were living them, but now put away the following. And he goes on to other types of sins. But although that we've sinned in some way, 
It may be a sexually immoral sin. There's mercy and grace and forgiveness in God. Jesus himself said that every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven. There is hope in our sin, no matter what, as Paul says, he says to these Colossians that you used to walk in these ways. So there is a turning point. There's a turning point of repentance, which means turning from sin and following Christ. I'm running a little low on time, so I want to try and get through these last few verses as quickly as I possibly can. He goes in through verses 8 through 10, but now put away following anger, wrath, malice, slander, and filthy language from your mouth. Do not lie to one another since you've put off the old self and practices. Put on the new self. Put on that new self, that new life in Christ. That's what he's saying. And you are being renewed in the knowledge according to the image of your creator. In Christ there is no Greek, Jew, circumcision, uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, slave, or free, but in Christ in all. I want to skip down I want to skip down to verse 15. You'll see in verses 12 through 14 a response to this idea of turning to Christ. You see the fruit of the Spirit. You see uh, g- kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, bearing for one another. And he says this in verse 15. Let the peace of Christ to which you were also called in one body rule your hearts and be thankful. Let the word dwell richly in all wisdom and teaching, admonishing one another through psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing to God with gratitude in your heart, and do whatever you do in word and deed. So he takes the Colossians from the centrality of Christ, the truth of Christ, to, to who Christ is, to obedience, and now he takes them to worship. Look at this. Listen to this again. Let the peace of Christ which is called to dwell in you in one body rule your hearts and be thankful, but let the word of Christ dwell richly among you. This is what we do as the church. We come together, we read this word, this revelation from God, and we let it dwell in us richly. Proverbs uh, verse 28, excuse me, chapter 28 verse 9 tells us that uh, without, without revelation the people will perish. That's not a church growth strategy verse. What that is, that is a verse about people who are living outside of Scripture. who they, their, their lives can go down destructive paths. Why? Because it's God's revelation of what's best for life. We as the church had to let that dwell in us richly. Let that stir up our affections and point us to Christ and live a life that bears the fruit of the Spirit. And then he says this. Admonishing one another through psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. Folks, you're doing what God commands when you are here. When you are here Sunday morning, this is what we do. We come together as the church to celebrate God's grace together, to sing songs of praise to him, to enjoy his graces together, to walk with one another through life. This is what we're called to do as the church, to be here together, enjoying God's grace together. Look at it in Acts chapter 2. The Bible makes it clear that they met and came together, breaking bread together, enjoying fellowship together. We're a church family that walks through our spiritual lives together. And Paul is encouraging these Colossians to continue to do that, to be strong as a church spiritually, to come together. So I'll close with, close with a couple ideas here. 
or thoughts. Number one, are you walking today in the joy of Christ and the victory of Christ? We saw in the earlier verses that Christ is seated at, his right, at the right hand of God. He has won the war. He slayed Satan. The prophecy will be fulfilled that he will completely kill and defeat death once and for all at his second coming. And yes, we are in a hard life at times. Yes, we see difficult times in our lives. But are we walking in the joy and the victory of Christ? Are we walking and knowing that he is on the right hand reigning? We saw an insane political season last year. And I think we saw a lot in the Christian community freak out a little bit. I think we may have lost sight of who Christ is as far as his victory and his exaltation. Let me ask you something. Nero was the emperor of, of Rome and the time of early Christian church. This man was an absolute monster. He was setting Christians on fire at the stake and running his chariot straight through them. Christ was still in victory then. And those faithful Christians are in glory now. It doesn't matter who becomes our, our political leader. Christ is ruler of all. He is on his throne. And are we walking in that joy today? I want to encourage you to remember that. Walk in his joy of where he is seated. Number two, are you killing sin in your life? I'm not being a Pharisee about this. What I'm telling you is that God calls us to be sanctified in truth. He tells his disciples, pray that they would be sanctified in truth. We ought to always be looking and examining our hearts to kill sin in our life. If we grow in our, our, our faith together and we grow in our grace and our love for grace together, we understand the glory and the beauty of God and we want to walk like him. We want to be in his likeness. And when we do that, we kill sin. We mortify sin. I encourage you, continually check your heart and kill the sin that is dwelling in your life. Is it easy? No. Paul lays that out in Romans 7. He tells us that, oh, the things he does not want to do, he still does or falls into. So I'm not telling you here, if you have a struggle with sin, that there's no hope. There is hope. It's through Christ's word. Live in his word. Dwell in his word. Dwell in prayer. Bring it to your Christian brothers and sisters and kill sin in your life. I want to close with this. Students, when you think about the Apostle Paul, if you read the book of Acts, you're going to see something. That they continuously faced persecution for their faith. They continuously had to fight off Pharisees from the old Judaism system of religion. That they fought off all kinds of, of heresies. But Jesus told them, I will send you the helper, the Holy Spirit that will guide you and teach you. Guys, I want to tell you something. Walk with Christ when you leave. Keep your journey with Christ strong in every area of your life. In whatever you do, school, sports, your personal life, your purity, please take your purity seriously. Please take your walk with Christ seriously. We all have struggles. We all will face things. But there's a God in heaven who sent his son to die for your sins and by repentance and faith, he's given you the gift of salvation for you to be in eternity in heaven and dwell with him forever. And he set that love upon you. The Bible says that 
We love God because he first loved us. So when you face adversity, remember, there's a God that loves you. He's seated at the right hand. He's in glory. He's in victory. He's already won the war. You just walk in faith. Believe the gospel. I encourage you to get in your word, study apologetics, not to win a debate, not to prove anything you don't already know, but to provide a response. Because who knows whose life you might change by being strong in your faith. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for blessing the Apostle Paul with the Holy Spirit to write these letters that strengthen us and grow our Christian walks today. God, I pray that your word would settle in our hearts, that you would stir up our affections, that you would let us leave here as true worshipers of you. I pray that that we would worship you in obedience, walking in your law, walking in the commands of Christ to love God with all our strength and heart and to love our neighbor as ourself. I pray that we will bring ourselves to a place of worship, that we will worship Christ, that we will give him everything, that we will give him our hearts and sing songs of praise, sing hymns, come together as the church. God, I pray for these seniors. I pray that their walks will be sanctified in truth, that they will walk with you that they will love you, that when they face trials or struggles, that they will seek your word for help, they will seek the Holy Spirit for help, they will seek the church for help. And God, I pray that you give us the strength to just love them, to love them in their walks, to love them in their next steps. I pray that your word would meditate in our hearts today, and I pray that we would leave here as worshipers of you, and to remember that you loved us first, and that you sent your son to die for our sins. In your name I pray, amen.